Uh, today we start our, our very last sermon in this series on Psalm 22, and so we've been going through a devotional along with it, and so if you're just joining us, you're just checking in, you can go on Facebook, and uh, the Covenant Facebook or Twitter has every single one of these days leading up to today. You can uh, find that there. And then today we finish, and so tomorrow through Saturday will be the last six days of our devotional as we walk through, ultimately, uh, sorrow and suffering with King David. And so we've been through uh, some of the tougher stuff. We've been through a lot of the, the challenges of what does it look like to go through sorrow? What does it look like to deal with grief? Uh, what does it look like to go through trial? And today we talk about healing. We get to healing. And what's fun about healing is it seems like it's like the end we're all hoping for. And what's a challenge is there's no straight line formula to get there. That no matter where you are and what you've gone through, there's not really a clear formula on how you're to find healing through the struggle. We've said that grief and suffering and loss are not something you get over as much as something you learn how to carry with you. And if that's true, then that can leave us feeling rather unresolved about the whole thing because now I'm just carrying this new thing with me. It's not necessarily something that's resolved and and feels healed. What we're going to see today, where we're going, is uh, these three places. First, we're going to learn that we are already healed. And then what we're going to find is that we have not yet found fullness of healing. Already and not yet. And thirdly, we're going to walk the dusty path to the ultimate healing and hope uh, that God is stitching together for us. And so we're going to start in Psalm 22 with King David's words. We're going to go back to where we've been this entire month. And he writes this. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will will feast and worship all who go down to the dust, will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. This is a real finality given by David here. He's he's really kind of worked through suffering and sorrow and loneliness and, and trial. And in this passage, we get this real sense that David is sensing a future finality as well. But it is all still future tense. And this is something we talked about last week. This is rooted, this section is rooted, and it harkens back to verse 24, where David says, for he, God, has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. He has not. And so we said last week, this is past tense that David is rooting in to look forward with his will statements for a future tense reality, a future tense finality. So what we're saying is that He has not despised or scorned, and therefore, all will remember him. All will bow down. The past tense informs the future tense. Now, this is always true, but this is why we feel a present tension. Okay, so the past tense informs the future tense, and that leaves us with present tension. That you and I, in this present tense, feel a certain tension, a certain tug, a certain war between two worlds of what has happened and what will happen, but it hasn't happened yet. And so what do I do? We live in a kingdom that has already had its inauguration. We live in the already and the not yet. And this is a common theological concept that is both wildly simple and wildly complicated at the same time. We live in a kingdom that has already had its inauguration in King Jesus. We've already seen the king brought in and put on the throne. Many of the promises of the king have already been fulfilled, but some are still yet to come. So we haven't reached peak fulfillment of this kingdom. It's not yet full. It's already here, and it's not yet in its fulfillment. And so what do we do with that? That's us living in the present tense, the present tension. 
And so when we read there's going to be no more sorrow or shame or pain, there will be no more tears, we say, I want that. I want that now. And the answer is, why can't I have that now? Well, the answer to that is, well, you already have that in Jesus. And yet we don't yet have the fullness of that in God's presence in eternity. Through the cross, there's no shame for the past. Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins. And yet shame still exists. And pain still exists and tears still exist in the brokenness of our current day. And so you are already taking part in a kingdom that is yet to be fully expressed. You are already living in an eternity, even if the fullness of that eternity is not yet felt. Which in one sense is pretty simple. I think I can get that. And in another sense is wildly complicated because it leaves us in the present unresolved tension. If we turn to the screen, the writer of Hebrews writes it this way. He says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, to Jesus, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So so you see the already and the not yet in the passage. You see the already. Jesus has been crowned in glory. Jesus is here, and yet everything is not yet subjected to him fully. He's already king, and yet not entirely fulfilled in the subjection of nature to him. We go to 1 John, and it says it a different way. He writes, Beloved, we are God's children when? Now. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So in this passage, you see it a different way. He says we are now, we are already God's children. What's already happened? Our identity has changed. We went from sinners to saved. We went from lost to found. We are already God's children. And yet what we will be has not yet appeared. We are already something identified with God as his claimed and forever secured. And yet we are not yet and the fulfillment of the glory that he's promised. You know, when you buy a house, most people, unless you pay cash for a house, if you pay cash for a house, I want to talk to you. Um, I'm going to let you buy me coffee. Um, When you buy a house, most people buy a house, and they they buy a house, and they let the bank actually buy the house, right? You, You buy the piece of paper from the bank and the promise to pay the bank some interest while the bank owns the house for 15 years, 30 years. When you buy a house, you actually, the bank holds the mortgage, Are you the homeowner, though, when you buy the house? When you sign the paper, are you the homeowner? Yes. Do you own the home? Not technically. The bank still owns the home. you got some years. Do you live in it like a homeowner? Yeah. You don't live like a renter anymore. When you buy the house, even though the bank owns all of it and you're paying them like $3 a month in principal and $9,000 a month in interest, you own the house. You paint the walls. You move in. You live fully. You own it. It's already yours, and it's not yet fully yours. It's an imperfect analogy, but the kingdom of God is the same. Eternity is now. Eternity is not something we wait for. Eternity is now. The kingdom is already here, and yet it's not totally here in its fullness. If we can begin to get this, I think we can start to see healing in our journeys through sorrow and suffering. If we begin to understand the idea that this works in the already and the not yet, then we begin to understand how healing might work for us as well. 
having been already delivered, our deliverance is not yet complete. Jesus' work on earth restores us and renews us and heals us and invites us into eternal life. That's already happened. Believers don't deny that. But we've not yet experienced the full erasure of the pain of this world, of the brokenness of relationship, of the downstream consequences of sin. We've not yet experienced the fullness of that. And so even though Jesus said it is finished and he brought us back from the precipice of death, even though he's bought us back into life with his words, it is finished, that has an ellipse at the end that says it is finished and I'm finishing it. Final healing won't be known this side of heaven. I'll tell you a little secret. Every time I make a hospital visit, every time I officiate a funeral, I have sort of this concept running through my head. I'm thinking something, and it's not something you really say to people who are, who are um, struggling or who are people who are grieving, people who are mourning, people who are anticipating a difficult time. But it's still something that lingers in my head. You see, when we pray for healing for a loved one, or when through tears we question why God didn't heal someone but instead called them home, what we're really talking about is two different things. First, there's this momentary existence. There's, there's healing today in the moment. But there's also the final, ultimate healing that takes place in his presence. So you can, you can pray for someone to be healed and repaired here. But you can also pray for someone to be healed, which means to be freed from this body and this brokenness and ushered into the presence of the angels. And those are two different things, but they're the same prayer if we're not careful. Both are healing. Someone once asked me after the death of my sister, after 14 years of her uh, suffering and going through her own trial, someone once asked me if I ever questioned. I said, do you ever question? Do you ever wonder? Do you ever, do you ever kind of punch back? I said, what do you mean? I said, do you ever question why God never healed her? And all of her pain and all of her suffering and all of her trial, and two lung transplants and a kidney transplant and just years in the hospital. Do you ever wonder why God never healed her? I looked at him. I said, don't you see? He finally did. That we waited 14 years and we prayed that prayer for 14 years and he finally did. That after 14 years, he finally answered our prayer that she finally was healed. And it wasn't the way we would have asked for at the beginning of the journey, but it was definitely the way we were asking for at the end of the journey to go, he finally healed her. So she's whole now and freed from the oppression of a broken body. And this is the tension that we live in of the already and the not yet. That healing here is is temporal and there's an eternal healing that awaits each of us. And so as I visit with people, as I sit in the hospital, as I wait in the family waiting room before the memorial service starts, I'm holding this tension in my head. As I hear people wondering, why didn't he heal her? I find myself wondering, why we don't recognize that our prayers have already been answered. And it's a difficult thing to sit with and it's a hard thing to wrestle with because you and I live in the already and the not yet. You and I live in this idea that we're already healed and we're not yet there. And frankly, I don't want to die. I like it here. And I totally, I'm cognizant of the idea that it's better, that there's something greater awaiting us, that there's a greater life, that there's a fuller presence of God on offer. And, and I don't yet have the access to that. And maybe, maybe I should want that more, but but you and I are flesh and bones and we have loves and we have desires and we have people around us and we go, I don't want, I don't want to leave this for that. 
It's a tension. It is our present tension. That's why it's so hard to wrap our minds around a statement in Scripture that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Usually when you have a but in the middle of a sentence, you have a, this is this, but that is that. They're contrasting. And this is just levels of greatness. To live is Christ. There's, that's pretty good. To die is even better. It's a, it's a contrast in great and greater. In perfect and more perfect, if that's even possible. It doesn't make any sense unless we recognize the tension that we live in. It doesn't make any sense unless we can recognize every day that we're in the already and the not yet. And none of this is easy to walk in. But what we start to realize as we walk this path is that sorrow and suffering become the paving stones for the journey to real healing. The trial and tribulation offer us, or I would even say force us, to look back to God, to point to God, to shine a light back on God. That grief and loss offer us, or maybe even force us, into the opportunity to seek healing or a healer. What's interesting is the people I know who are most ready for the presence of God, people I know who are most ready to say to live is Christ, but to die is gain. The people who are least afraid of death are the people who've suffered the most tremendous losses. People whose loved ones await them, people who have come to see that this place doesn't hold enough hope to cure everything. The people who have come to recognize that all of this is preparation for what's next. that every grief points to a greater glory, that every loss points to a life everlasting, that we are already citizens of, of the kingdom of heaven and not yet home walking with the Lord just yet. Corey Ten Boom says this. She says, Every experience God gives us is the perfect preparation for the future only he can see. Every experience God gives us is the perfect preparation for the future only he can see. Your present tension is a reminder that God was there at the start and already knows the end. And I think one of the beauties of scripture is the way that the beginning meets the end so perfectly that the first pages dovetail with the last pages and they might as well be the same pages because it was written by the same divine author. David says in Psalm 22 that all will bow before God, that all who go down to dust will kneel. This is a beautiful picture of a biblical story being completed. Genesis 2, God scoops up some dust and he breathes life into it and he calls it man. Adam, dirt man. Life. What we see in Genesis 2 is that we are a people of low standing, that we are a people of humble beginnings, that we are a people breathed together from the dust. We also have a precursor in the first pages of our scripture. It isn't just a beat down to say you are nothing. You're simply dust to think of yourselves as low. What we see is the behavior of God in the very first pages of the scripture is this, that God will stoop down low. God will get humble beside us in order to bring us life. That God is willing to bend low. That God is willing to get into our dust to bring us greater life. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it famously says, we came from dust and to dust we shall return. You hear that, dust to dust. This is the universal genuflection that, that David is talking about, that all will bow, that no one, no matter how much status or wealth, no matter what we have, that everyone comes back to our knees. We all find our knees again in the dust before the Lord. That none of us outlives this life. 
None of us has life beyond the temporal existence here that we all genuflect equally, that we all hit our knees. We all return to the dust from which we came. And if you live in the already and the not yet, you see that as the greatest, most hopeful thing in Scripture. Because God not only breathes life into us in the dust, but he breathes life back into us when he finds the dust again. That God created us from dust and then saved us by returning to that same dust. That Jesus leaves the heavens and is born into a dusty animal stall. He walks in a dusty world. To those who would refuse to acknowledge his glory, he tells his disciples to shake the dust. Over and over, he's drawing in the dust. He's spitting in the dust. He's working in the dust. He's living in the dust. He's meeting us in the dust. Because dust is profound in scripture. Because God says it's so. Suffering may bring us to low points in life, but we will never walk anywhere that God has not first walked. In the ashes and dust of our sorrow, we kneel before a God who uses low places to bring greater life. So every time we find ourselves in the dust, we either find ourselves in a creation moment or a redemption moment. A creation moment or a redemption moment, because in the first pages of your Bible, God uses dust for creation. What is he creating in you? And then as you flip through, when you find Jesus, what you see is that God uses dust for redemption. What is he redeeming in you? It's creation and redemption. Creation and redemption. Sorrow, suffering, creation, redemption. That we walk into God's creative, redemptive work. And the paving stones of our lives, the sorrow and suffering that we see as a pain along the journey, is God's finishing work in us. Dust awaits each of us. And glory lies there as well. Dust is our fear and where our hope lies. From the crown of thorns pressing into the head of the blameless Jesus, the precious blood of the ultimate sacrifice drips down into the dust. It's the perfect picture of the holy invading the broken, of the perfect blameless son of God, his life force dripping into the dust again. It's a picture of extraordinary healing and even the most ordinary pain. That you and I are never in this alone, that you and I are not walking a path that doesn't have a plan. I'll finish with this. Growing up, my mother uh, used to cross-stitch. Have any cross-stitchers in the room? I raised my hand, but I don't cross-stitch. Okay, um... Now, there's anything wrong with that. Just, I just wanted to be sure so we don't trade notes later because I don't know what I'm doing. It's basically a grid. It, it's a fabric grid, and then you have a pattern, and you learn where to put what color of thread through with the needle, and you make the, about a thousand tiny little X's in the grids, and out of it comes a picture. You see them on people's walls. There's a picture of a house, and it says, Bless this mess. A little boy, baby boy, stitched in, and it has the birth date of someone's child. It's cross stitch. As a kid, I'd walk by, and my mom had a spot on the couch where she would cross stitch because she had to have good lighting, so it was under this lamp, all the little bulbs turned on, and you gotta have good lighting to cross stitch. And so I'd walk by, and I'd see what she's doing, and there's threads hanging out of all different colors, and there's this weird X shaping pattern happening, and I have no idea what's happening. Mom, what are you doing? She goes, don't worry about it. I said, no, no, but what is this even going to be? She goes, don't worry about it. 
And sure enough, there was always a plan. There was always some scene unfolding. There was always an eventual picture. Pretty soon, the, the teddy bear showed itself or the house showed itself. And you go, ah, that's what that was. But I just couldn't see it. She would sit there on the couch and she'd always have something going. It would, it would sit on the arm of the couch when she wasn't there so you could take a peek and see if you could guess the puzzle of what was unraveling at the moment, what these threads were coming through to make. It was already being stitched. But it was not yet complete. It was already being created, but it wasn't yet in its fullness. The reality was she held the plan whether I could recognize it or not. She had the diagram that told her what it was going to be. She knew exactly what it would look like in full color. She already had the end in hand, even when it wasn't visible for me. And when she finished, I'd go, wow, that from those green X's in the bottom corner, it turned into the St. Patrick's Day thing on the, I would never would have guessed. It didn't look like that. And now I get it. In sorrow and in suffering, we lose sight of glories for a season. We lose sight of the end for a season. We're in the fog of those things, but we need never lose hope. God's goodness precedes us. And if you and I are paying attention, we will see that he is stitching together a story of grace and glory, one thread at a time. Sometimes even using the threads of sorrow and suffering but those threads become the fabric of our eternity. That they are the fabric of creation and they are a fabric of redemption. And if we believe that, then we are being sewn into the fabric of an eternal hope that can't be denied. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray today that uh, you will find us each familiar with the dust. Lord, that as we consider where we've come from, that it is out of your creative beauty, out of your design that we've been knitted into being. Father, that we would recognize the humble place we come from. And at the same time, we would recognize that you would humble yourselves because you thought so much of us to save us. Father, I pray for anyone in this room who is in a battle. Lord, that they would have a clear sense of what God is creating in them. Of what God is redeeming in them. Father, I pray that you would make that clear Have those questions. God, what are you creating? What are you redeeming? Put those upon our hearts every day. Father, what are you stitching into my life? What greater grace and goodness do I need? Lord, my prayer for ultimate healing for each and every one of us is not necessarily that you'll make us feel better today but you'll help us recognize that all is better in your will and the wake of your glory. Lord, be with us as we walk this path. Be with us when every stitch hurts. Be with us. Amen.